Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, your irreverent and occasionally erudite guide to the plays of William Shakespeare. In today's episode, the original bromantic comedy featuring two scoundrels of Verona and the women who suffer them, and also a dog. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode one, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. It's a crowd tickler. Mistaken identities, shipwreck, pirate king, a bit with a dog, and love triumphant. I think I've seen it. I didn't like it. But this time it is by Shakespeare. So before we begin our first show, some introductions are probably in order. Uh, James, how long have we known each other? Basically, Will and I met in, in this class in 2006. We were then roommates the following three years. And uh, since leaving college, Will has worked, well, he lived and worked in New York City, where he did speech writing and strategic communications, moved to D.C., where he worked on Capitol Hill in foreign policy affairs in the Senate, and is now working on a Ph.D. about, roughly speaking, Will, correct me if I'm wrong, the intersection between domestic politics political culture and national security strategy is that that is that is what i tell my advisor at any rate um so (laughs) (laughs) fair enough yeah and uh james after we finished college he's had one of the more colorful and interesting careers of my my friends and roommates uh he moved to los angeles and then worked in film production and post-production in hollywood uh mostly in the documentary sort of world. And he's recently joyously relocated to the East Coast, uh, the home of his ancestors. Uh, and he spends a lot of free time writing about movies. So you'll hear references to some aspects of that uh, from both of us throughout the pod. So the premise of this show is that Shakespeare is really meant to be enjoyed. And there's a reason he was the most popular playwright and is the most popular playwright of all time. And that his work is so enduring. Uh, and that's because he's a genius, but it's also because his work is supposed to be kind of accessible to regular people like you and me. But it doesn't feel like that oftentimes to people today, you know? It's sometimes like his work feels shrouded in mystery because of how long ago the plays were written, scholarly focus on the work. It kind of makes it seem kind of like important with a capital I, uh, and we lose sense of, of how they actually felt to the man writing them and the people reading them and seeing them performed. Well, you can... Maybe you consider yourself more an expert than I consider myself. But the sort of the purpose of this is is to somewhat hopefully educated people who have not, however, read all that much Shakespeare to go through and read all the plays, have fun talking about them, and hopefully also uh, share that experience so other people can also experience our understanding of why these plays resonate today and why some of them don't resonate. And, you know, we're, we're also, we're not scholars of this specific subject. So hopefully we'll, you know, we'll be able to think about this in a a more accessible and less academic way. Yeah, exactly. Both of us are, I think, a little bit by nature completists. So we really do want to try and do the whole thing, which is to say all of the plays. But, you know, as with a lot of Shakespeare's life, the order in which they were written and performed is a bit of a mystery. I mean, obviously there's people that have dedicated their lives to this, uh, but we've just decided to summarily follow the chronology laid out in the Oxford Shakespeare, uh, the complete works. Uh, and that's kind of the way we're, we're going to do it, try and keep it simple and just keep progressing in roughly chronological order so you can sort of see how Shakespeare's writing evolved and also, uh, you know, sort of approach kind of the complexity of the work or lack thereof as, as time goes on. Uh, so with that in mind, James, our first play is The Two Gentlemen of Verona. What's the background on this one? 
So as I was doing a little bit of research on this, I, I wanted to kind of divide it up into two or three separate points. So the first of that is kind of the big picture historical stuff. The play see is, is not definitively dated, but it seems to have been written basically between 1589 and 1593, and more specifically, probably between 1590 and 1591. People think it's Shakespeare's first play that's, you know, somewhat debatable, as with all these things. But as we'll discuss later, part of the reason I think that is because it's just a, clearly not his most mature uh, work. So in terms of what was going on at that time, it's 1589 or 1590, I guess, is the, I believe, the 32nd year of the reign of Elizabeth I. It's either two or three years after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. So it's a kind of victorious time in England, but it's also nonetheless still a time of a lot of conflict and a lot of apparent threat, primarily from the Spanish superpower. It's also a period of the first colonial adventures uh, of England. Um, you know, Roanoke, the first American colony was established in 1585. There's a lot of fascination with the New World and with travel. In terms of culture, um, Shakespeare, of course, is coming on the heels of a couple of other major playwrights, most notably Christopher Marlowe. And in terms of Shakespeare himself, he is around 25 or 26 in this era. So he's quite young. He has two daughters who are seven and five and one son who's also five. Uh, and he seems to... Sort of, he, he appears to have started his career as an actor before switching to playwriting. As far as the play itself, uh, Shakespeare's major sources appear to have been a prose romance written in Spanish called The Seven Books and Diana, uh, and then a, a friendship depicted in a actually what is, seems to have been a work of political philosophy called The Book of the Governor written by one Tom but this is Elliot. But this is a comedy, um, to be clear, right? Yes, to be clear, this is, this is a comedy. This, it is a romance. It is a romantic comedy, one, one might say. <laughs> Although, oh, how romantic it is, I think, is very open debate. Yes, decidedly. And then, so, if I may just jump into a very quick summary of the play. The, the play opens with two very good friends named Proteus and Valentine in the titular town of Verona in Italy. Valentine is departing to go to the court of the Duke of Milan, while Proteus is, in, is intending to stay behind because he's in love with a woman named Julia. Shortly after Valentine's departure, Proteus' father uh, decides that he should leave and basically become a man, so he sends him to the court of the Duke of Milan as well. When he arrives, he discovers that Valentine has fallen in love with a woman named Sylvia, and Proteus immediately also falls in love with this woman named Sylvia and decides that he's going to undermine Valentine's efforts to get her to elope with him. He portrays Valentine to the Duke. Valentine is exiled. Proteus attempts to woo Julia himself, though in the guise of wooing her on behalf of Thurio, who is a man favored by her father. In the meantime, Julia, Proteus's original paramour, appears in Verona and basically is dismayed, as one would expect, to find that Proteus has sort of abandoned her for this new woman. Sylvia chases after, chases after Valentine, who has taken up residence in the woods outside the town uh, and mysteriously become the leader of a band of outlaws. Proteus follows Sylvia. Julia follows Proteus. And the Duke follows all of them. And ultimately, all's well that ends well. Uh, Proteus is exposed, but then he and Valentine make up, and 
uh, Valentine and Sylvia get married, and Proteus and Julia seem to be on the road to getting married at the end as well. And of course, everyone makes up with the Duke, who was pretty mad about this as well. I think that about covers it. Uh, and there is a lot there. Uh, so with each of these shows, one of us is going to ask the other three questions to sort of get it what the hell just happened and what is going on and to try and you know clear up areas we're confused by things that are kind of interesting and so and this one i've got to start with the setting when i read this the two gentlemen of verona it's set in italy as you mentioned so is romeo and juliet and if i recall i mean obviously merchant of venice much ado about nothing taming of the shrew a bunch of others of shakespeare's work are all in italy why is that? Well, Will, I have some thoughts, but also some scholars have thoughts as well. Um, so when you told me you were gonna, that this was going to be one of your questions, I, I did a little bit of research just to see what other people have said. And I, I, what I found pretty much dovetails into my theory, but is not explicitly my theory. So sort of put, to put out what other people have said, um, there's a few elements. Number one, Italy was definitely, it seemed, or definitely seems to have been a frequent destination for serious travelers in the era. Um, so there's an element of this that is him sort of exploiting or taking advantage of interest in it as a setting and as a location that people would be somewhat familiar with. There's some theories that are completely unsubstantiated that Shakespeare may have traveled there himself between 1585 and 1589. Um, there's also a strong influence of Italian poets uh, on the development of English love poetry. So Shakespeare, of course, is famous for his sonnets, and the sonnet is derived from an Italian form. There's a lot of familiarity with the work of Petrarch in particular. Um, there were also a lot of Italian sources available in translation because of the amount of traveling that uh, English people were doing to Italy. And Italy was also uh, sort of a both a foreign setting that was known as a place of learning and cultivation. It was a place where there were a lot of rival city-states, which sort of made it a, an interesting political situation to try to exploit. And it was also a, a bit of a crossroads for the world since it was you know, the site of one of the great trading empires of the Renaissance era in Venice, as well as being very close to uh, North Africa and the Ottoman Middle East. So... Those are a few reasons that are, you know, that I read um, as I was researching this. My theory is that it sort of has to do with the same kinds of reasons that uh, that the Western was a popular, that a Western setting was such a popular setting for movies um, in sort of the middle part of the 20th century. In that Italy in this era has a bunch of different and rival city-states, some of which are titularly under the same rulers, being the Holy Roman Emperor or the Spanish Habsburgs. There's the Papal States. There's the Republic of Venice. These places are all very close together, and they're all engaged in a lot of conflict. There had been ongoing battles between supporters of the Pope and supporters of the Emperor, up until 1559, so very much within living memory. So, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a Wild West feel where anything can happen, where there's a lot of competing interests. And in that, there's sort of a, a rich possibility for, for rivalry and for political discord and for violence. So that makes, yeah, that, I find that plausible. I mean, it certainly sets up sort of the stage for, for a lot of drama. The other question that I had, and this is maybe more my sort of like vulgarian sensibilities here, but 
like this is this is Italy. This is like the country that produced like Sophia Loren and uh, you know just just beautiful people, right? Uh, and maybe that's a little bit of a 20th century uh, sort of impression or whatever. But is there also sort of a sense that you know at the time maybe there was kind of a, a stereotype of Italians as sort of like this kind of Southern European stereotype in the minds of kind of the frigid English. It's like they're hot, they're impetuous and hot blooded and in and out of love really easily. Um, that was, that was sort of my thought. I do not know the answer to that question. And it's something that I will, that I will uh, do a little more research on. I would not be surprised. And I feel like there could easily be references to that sort of thing throughout Shakespeare. Yeah. We'll definitely get to uh, test the hypothesis. I feel like uh, over the next, uh, the next few plays, um, okay, so second question. The central conflict in this play hinges on Proteus turning on Valentine and getting him banished from Milan after all of these sort of remarks earlier in the play about they are like the tightest bros in the world. And he does all of this so he can basically pursue Sylvia, as you mentioned. Uh, and then at the end of the play, you know, things kind of get crazy. Um, Proteus basically threatens to rape Sylvia when she doesn't respond to his repeated efforts to woo her. And then uh, Valentine confronts him out in the woods and he's like, he basically apologizes to Valentine. Valentine offers to give Sylvia to Proteus as sort of a peace offering. And then Julia faints and reveals herself. So what, what gives? Why is Proteus so awful? Like what explains his behavior in this? Because he kind of turns on a dime. He's in love with Julia. And then it's like he swipes left on Julia and swipes right extremely hard on Sylvia uh, to the point where he is a total creep. So what gives? Why is he so terrible? I mean, the thing I texted you the other day was that the main the main thrust of my argument was that Proteus is both a garbage human being and a garbage friend. Um, and, you know, the, the question that you ask was on my mind from what is it? Act two, scene two or something like that, whichever whichever scene it is where he where he first arrives in Milan. And it's kind of bizarre. I had a couple of thoughts about this. I think my main theory, and I'm interested to know what you think about this, I think my, my main theory is that it really has nothing to do with Sylvia at all. And it's really about Proteus's sort of A, lack of self-confidence, and B, his admiration for envy towards and anger with Valentine. You know, so I, I was wondering, you know, is some of this maybe that he's suggestible and that because Valentine, who previously has been so sort of uninterested in love, has now fallen in with fallen in love with someone. Is it possible that he thinks that that's anyone who Valentine would fall in love with must be a clearly superior love interest to his former interest in Julia? How much of it, and and sort of built into that is the thought of you know is he afraid that. Is he worried about losing Valentine to this new woman, um, which I can sort of see, but I'm not sure about given that he's already let Valentine go and decided to stay with Julia in Verona previously. And then how much of it is him seeing this as a sort of opportunistic way to get back in Valentine for ribbing him so much in Verona? You know, Proteus, uh, this was one of the lines I highlighted in relation to this question. Proteus, as Valentine is trying to get him to um, to praise Sylvia's beauty, 
says, when I was sick, you gave me bitter pills and I must minister the like to you. So I was sort of wondering if, if there's a little bit of an edge and a little bit of a rivalry going on in that regard. Um, yeah, I think I think that's think? really plausible. I mean, especially if you start out at the beginning of the play, uh, there are all these odes to manly and masculine friendship. I mean, I think the term that's used is sort of homosocial kind of behavior, and we'll get to that, you know, maybe a little bit uh, more in depth later in the later in the play. But I, I think almost from the start, right? There's a lot of references, you know, Proteus referring to Valentine as sweet Valentine, uh, and sort of these odes to one another's kind of mm-hmm. manly qualities, uh, and so forth. And it's definitely a there's definitely a strong sort of like bro code element to this play, uh, where you can sort of see kind of the the anger curdle a little bit within um within Proteus. So I actually think that, yeah, I think that the, and you know, and it's not unlike like when one of your friends gets married and then you start seeing them less, right? Uh, or you don't end up hanging out with them. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was even thinking, I, I don't know if um, this ever happened with you, but I remember I had one good friend in high school who started dating someone and like kind of vanished. And I was so mad. And you know, and that to me sort of fits in with this play being written by a younger Shakespeare. I mean, if he's only 26, obviously Shakespeare's married at the time, but still, like, you could sort of see him as a younger man, maybe not able to grapple with these things very maturely, mm. possibly. That may be reading too much into it, but that was certainly yeah. a thought that I well, had. Well, I mean, one thing that sort of strikes me about it, actually, I, you know, as somebody who's, uh, you know, been involved in. <laughs> Uh, long distance relationships uh, for you know most of my post collegiate life of one form or another, you can sort of see how Shakespeare is living this life down in London with all of his actor friends. And actors back then are like kind of disreputable, kind of on the margins of society, lots of partying, lots of kind of like you know ecking out uh, a living basically, uh, living hand to mouth. And he's got like a wife and two kids uh, in Stratford. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of see like, and maybe this is me reading into it too much, but there's this kind of element of being maybe a little bit torn between these two worlds. Uh, and it's the sort of life of, you know, the carefree sort of uh, world of, of kind of men um, and friendship, manly friendship. And then there's kind of this question of like, women and serious commitments that are sort of being discussed in the play. I guess like the thing that I still kind of grapple with is the hard turn Proteus makes. So I'll read a couple lines to you from here. Um, So first off, when Mm -hmm. he, he like literally he meets Sylvia and after Valentine is sort of describing her to him, he, you know, and then he meets her, he's sort of playing it cool and he's sort of uh, trying not to show that he has any interest in her, but he like turns on a dime the moment Valentine and Sylvia sort of leave the room. And he says, at first I did adore a twinkling star, but now I worship a celestial sun. And it's almost like he's just like looking for an excuse to sort of trade up now that Julia's out of the picture. Uh, And he sort of compounds this by just the real exaggeration. And there's a kind of quality of mimicry because there's actually a beautiful monologue that valentine gives um after he gets banished but you sort of see these moments of and they're a lot less eloquent to my mind of proteus trying to do kind of the same thing and he says um and sylvia witness heaven that made her fair shows julia but a swarthy ethiop which you know 
uh, not very not very politically correct um, Proteus. So another another reason we can look back and say, okay, man, maybe maybe not so good. Uh, there's lots of comparisons of Sylvia being fair skinned uh, and Julia being swarthy. You know, it's 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 interesting. There's also references to like face masks that people use that women use to keep themselves fair skinned, uh, prevent the sun from sort of beating down on them, which is which is also interesting. Uh, different conceptions of beauty, but. You know, compare that to the much more genuine uh, and famous uh, monologue by Valentine, where he says, "What, yes, the what, what light, light is light. light?" It's actually maybe maybe the only really like truly beautiful section of the play, in my view, uh, where he he really just goes into it. And why not death rather than living torment? To die is to be banished from myself, and Sylvia is myself. Banished from her is self from self. A deadly banishment. What? Light is light, if Sylvia be not seen. What joy is joy, if Sylvia be not by? Unless it be to think that she is by and feed upon the shadow of perfection. Except I be by Sylvia in the night. There is no music in the nightingale. Unless I look on Sylvia in the day, there is no day for me to look upon. She is my essence, and I leave to be if I be not... Take off your hat. And that's beautiful. But all of the odes that Proteus gives by contrast are these kind of like throwaway one-liners. Like he's trying to like spit game, but it's all these very, it's the equivalent of a guy giving uh, giving sort of really bad pickup lines whenever he's trying to woo Sylvia. Am I wrong in, in remembering, I, I, and I, I did not go back and look at this part of the play again, but I believe Proteus even recommends to Thurio that he get some <laughs> minstrels to like, to... <laughs> And then is there and basically is like leading the minstrels in, in you know, singing for Sylvia. And Sylvia basically, these guys are trash and you're also trash. Yes. I mean, Sylvia is like impervious to the terrible, terrible game that Proteus is spitting at her. Uh, and in fact, I mean, this is, again, not to harp too much on, uh, you know, poor Proteus, but he's, he's a terrible human being. Um, when he runs into Sylvia at the end of the play, when he's trying to um, basically win her over... When she rejects him, he goes like, he goes like straight psychopath. Uh, you know, he he is like one of these, and this will lead to my third question. But he goes straight psychopath. Nay, if the gentle spirit of moving words can no way change you to a milder form, I'll woo you like a soldier at arm's end and love you against the nature of love. Force ye, I'll force ye to yield to my desire. Which is like that's some that's some pretty crazy crazy uh crazy stuff there yeah and i mean i i think to be fair it's it's worth noting that literally no one else thinks that this is cool <laughs> yeah yeah right no, like no, it's that's not right. like it's not like this is an endorsed form of wooing right like everyone everyone presses like pull him away like right Val that's when valentine confronts him i think yes so it's not it seems to me more to go to show proteus's degeneracy than anything else yeah, so so my last my last question uh, sort of confronts a couple of these things together. So, so is this, and it's really about the resolution of the play and how we're sort of meant to feel about these characters at the end of it, because you have this like, as you said, 
basically Proteus is sort of censured by Valentine. But then there's this weird kind of moment where Valentine offers Sylvia to him as kind of a peace offering, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then everybody, within like a few lines, everybody's living, quote unquote, happily ever after. So on the one hand, you know, the source of conflict sort of feels like it's it's removed and they can go back to being best bros again. And so on the one hand, there's a sort of like kind of, uh, you know, in the parlance of our time, like bro code, bros before hoes type thing going on here. On the other hand, obviously, you know, to also use parlance of our times, there's some toxic masculinity uh, that is sort of just left unresolved and kind of left hanging out there. And you're supposed to sort of feel happily ever after at the end of this, or or are you? Uh, and it kind of goes to like, what is this? Is this work? What is Shakespeare intending here? What kind of story is this? And is this a story in which you're meant to sort of feel like, oh, the world, everything is right with the world, or is it sort of a uh, a tribute to how Shakespeare introduces these? Or not a tribute, but like he introduces these tensions and then fails to resolve them. Is it sort of a testament to like an immature artist? In terms of the question of, in terms of that question, to me, I think that the failure of the play to adequately resolve those is not a thematic choice, um, but is more a reflection of the immaturity of the play, or maybe immaturity, the badness of the play, (laughs) Uh, really. Um, So... In terms of, but if I, to back up, right, like if if the question is, is this a heartwarming tale of bros before hoes or is it about toxic masculinity? Uh, to my eye, it's really neither. And the reason it's neither is because I don't think that this is actually a play about two people. I think this is a play about one person and that person mm-hmm. is Proteus. You know, I think Valentine is featured, but he's almost completely uninvolved in the action of the play. So my, and, and admittedly, I have no real reason to, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I'm not a scholar, I, you know, I don't know that much about the play other than my, my own reading of it, but it feels to me like Valentine, Valentine to me basically feels like a really good-hearted, bro-y jock. Um, <laughs> you know, he's like sort of like a, a really nice guy, he really wants everyone to get along, he's really good-hearted. Uh, he like he does want to do right by the Duke, but he also is in love with Sylvia, and so his plans to run off, and then the Duke's going to forgive them for some reason. And so, uh, to my eye, it feels like the play is really supposed to be about the education of Proteus, but because it's not well executed, it just ends up feeling kind of fake. And like you sort of get to the end, and you're like, Proteus is just going to take advantage of Valentine's good graces and betray him again. Um, what, what, what do you think of that? Does that seem... Yeah, that seems right. I mean, I, I definitely think that Shakespeare introduces these kind of weighty themes and tensions, and they're unresolved, I think, because he doesn't know how to resolve them, in a sense. And I think, like, he is dealing with some pretty potent and, at times, kind of disturbing moments in what is supposed to be a comedy. Um... And then also wants to tie a neat little bow on it. And we should also say interspersed between all of these scenes is sort of love and longing um, and kind of tension and hostility are these moments of, of comedy featuring the servants 
of the two main characters of Proteus um, and Valentine. And so there's a sort of like, and those are often like very low comedy. You mentioned sort of the body humor uh, at the beginning, both literally and figuratively, pun very much intended. The amount of just like discussions of, you know, sex and just kind of ridiculous, like ridiculous punning that goes on, like almost ad nauseum uh, in a couple of these scenes by the two servants. It's, it's a play that you get the sense, like there's a template for doing these kinds of like crowd pleasing plays almost. Um, and you see that maybe there's something more that Shakespeare could be trying to draw out here, but he can't quite fuse it with the form that he's working with. You know, it goes between sort of like very low comedy to having these moments of sort of actual eloquence to having these kind of moments of rather like disturbing and problematic behavior that even he recognizes in the narrative are problematic. And it's sort of like it's messy and it's not very satisfying when you sort of get to the end of it. And I think it's I think it is because like he doesn't exactly know what he's doing yet in terms of writing the play, but he's seen these types of things performed. It feels like what he wants to do is write a story about like he wants Proteus and he wants everyone to he literally wants everyone to live happily ever after. And where I think in later plays there's a more clear villain who can be sort of expiated, you know, the Malvolios. In this context, the villain is one of the main characters, is really the main character of the play. And while, you know, while I think that there are many great works of art that sort of deal with the redemption or the education of a character, this play does not reach that level at all. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, so there is know. there is neither there is neither a there is neither a satisfying lesson that Proteus learns, nor is there a villain whose wrongdoing is properly punished. You know, and instead we're left with what, what's the la, what's the famous last line the the one household one one shared happiness line. Whatever it is, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we're um, we're sort of left with this image of Valentine basically saying, and I, I think he, I think I thought I wrote it down here, but now I can't find it. I think um, I, I've got I've got it here. It's um, come Proteus, tis your penance, but to hear the story of your loves discovered that done our day of marriage shall be yours, one feast, one house, one mutual happiness. Yeah, I mean, it it's sort of given out as as this. You know this happily ever end, this happily ever after ending that's going to result in uh, Proteus has learned his lesson and everything's going to be fine. And but we're really left with this sort of sour taste that the way that it all wraps up is really abrupt. And you know Proteus has acted really bad. This I guess this is what it is. Proteus has acted really badly over the course of the play, almost from from the beginning of Act Two until. 50, 50 or so lines before the end of the play, he has been a total douchebag. <laughs> and then we get to the end, and it's like, oh, everything's fine. And it just, it leaves you feeling like there's something missing to me. Mm. Yeah, so I think to sort of think about the legacy of this play, um, you know, in turn to sort of how it's remembered today. It is performed every once in a while, uh, which is which is kind of interesting, but I think it's not one of the comedies that's a kind of go-to 
uh, mm-hmm. for you know Shakespearean theaters and companies that are that are performing these things. And there have been some BBC adaptations for TV, but there's really only one. And this was fascinating. There's really only one um, film adaptation, which is actually a silent movie that was made in China apparently in the 1930s. So take from that what you will. Uh, but but kind of fascinating that it it hasn't really lived on. Um, sort of in film, and I think that there's a lot that you could do with it to make it interesting uh, on the stage, particularly as like gender norms have changed, and sort of, you know, uh, you can you can sort of play with and draw out actually how awful Proteus is uh, throughout the play in a sort of modern uh, context. But um, but I don't think people really want to go to the movie theater to like see this kind of thing. Um, though interestingly, yeah. there have been some some big names have played in in this. Uh, uh, show before so mark rylance and helen mirren at different points were in different versions of it uh, and in 2005 oscar isaac actually played proteus and rosario dawson played julia in shakespeare in the park in central park uh, so that's kind of that's kind of interesting i mean it does sort of pop up but um it's definitely not one of his best uh and definitely uh. leans heavily on kind of like raunchy low humor on the one hand and then just sort of like bad plotting on the other to bring everything to a swift conclusion while all of this stuff is kind of out there you know <laughs> if i can make a an entertainment an, an entertainment industry analogy to me this is like the the thankfully forgotten first script of like aaron sorkin or something it, it is some major hollywood screenwriters first effort at writing that gets consigned to the dustbin and they learn from and go on to make other stuff like the only reason that this play has lived on is because shakespeare went on to write many much better works yeah i think that's i think that's right and it's actually uh, kind of a gag in um John Madden's movie, Shakespeare in Love, uh, which I'm sure we're going to be referencing a bunch as we do this podcast. Uh, but there's a major point of annoyance in that uh, in that movie for the young William Shakespeare, uh, because he's trying to actually create serious art, and he's still kind of living hand to mouth, uh, and he's trying to work on what will become Romeo and Juliet. But people remember him or know of him at that point for the two gentlemen of Verona within the play. It's what is performed in front of Judy Dench. And the only moment she like laughs during the performance is when a dog, uh, which is part of the part of the stage play, the dog runs off and bites somebody, you know, in the cast that it's not supposed to bite. Right. And so Jeffrey Rush's character is sort of the financier producer um, of Shakespeare's shows. It's constantly telling him like, all of this sounds, all this highfalutin, kind of serious drama that you're working on. It sounds great, but give the people a bit with a dog in it. You know, the bit with the dog. That's the part that you want. So there is this sort of element where I think, widely speaking, people recognize that this is an immature work, and even in the context of this movie, Shakespeare in Love, right? It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a jibe at Shakespeare. It's being pilloried. A it's being bit. pilloried a little bit. Um, and yeah, I don't know. The dog is kind of an interesting an interesting aspect of the show because I think it's the one sort of non-human character, non-speaking character that is in, you know, Shakespeare's plays in this form. Uh and it's kind of bizarre. Um I forget what's the, what's the dog's name again? Crab, I think. Um, uh Crab, yeah, Crab. Yeah, and that there's a lot right. of like there's a lot of humor. I think like again in Proteus being a terrible human being, he tries to give Crab 
to Sylvia at one point, which is ridiculous. Uh, after his servant, um, and I always get the two confused. I think it's Speed is his servant. Speed, you know, is telling this long story, yeah. kind of madcap about like the dog. I think Lance is Proteus's servant, and Speed is. Um... Speed Valentine's, is Valentine's. But... So at any rate, yeah, there, there is a moment where uh, Proteus has tasked his servant to offer Sylvia the dog as a love offering. But the servant has this monologue beforehand where he describes the dog running around and biting people and, uh, you know, relieving itself like at the dinner table of a bunch of lords and ladies. So it's just kind of a it's kind of a ridiculous uh, sort of element of the show. Actually, I, um, I, I wanted to talk about this moment real quick, Will. Because I, I did wonder if the, right, so in that particular moment that you're talking about where the dog, the dog pees on all the, on all the highfalutin people, Lance then says that he took the blame for that, <laughs> uh, sort of to spare the dog. And I was sort of wondering, like, is, is there a, a, again, unsuccessful, but a basically, is, is this supposed to be comprehended within the thematic unity of the play as like, this is the sort of crazy thing that people do because they love their pets? And are we supposed to read that as sort of writ large um, as part of the part of the um, Valentine Proteus discourse? You know, is, is it part of what the play is talking about? Or was that a crazy idea? <laughs> no, no, I don't think it's crazy. I actually think so. I actually think there's a sort of doubling, right, that, that kind of occurs. Because uh, on the one hand, you have the Valentine, Proteus, Julia, Sylvia sort of storyline. And then you have these sort of breakaway scenes. And the servants, I think, are actually, at least one of them is talking about a love uh, that he has for somebody else mm-hmm. who you never really learn about. But they are just like constantly bickering and sort of going at it. And I think that, the, you know, and the dog, the affection towards the dog, I think, plays into that to some degree. Uh, you know, I I mean, really it might, honestly, it all, the affection... What Lance's affection to the dog may be the truest representation of love in the play. Yeah, that that <laughs> the frighteningly enough. I it's think, a hot yeah. take, hot take being thrown out here by James Smith. I mean, hey, it's it might be um, it might be low art uh, and a low form of love, but at least it's genuine. Unlike um, unlike <laughs> a lot of the other stuff that happens in the higher, more poetic side of this play. At any rate, yeah, so very, very interesting uh, in the legacy of this one. It's like, it's clear that um, it's not one of his best, as you might say. I think we can safely call it one of the bad plays. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. It's definitely lower. Right now, we've only got a sample size of one, but let's just say it's in the definitely, lower. Definitely the worst play. Definitely yes, the worst play we've read worst. so far. Definitely the worst play we've read so far. So we've spent a lot of time talking yeah, about yeah. The, the two main male characters in this play, and that's sort of where the the sort of focus of the action is, you know, it's sort of what sets the plot in motion. And the women, unfortunately, to some degree, they're sort of acted upon rather than actors in their own right. However, there are some exceptions to that. And, um, you know, I know you have some thoughts on Sylvia and how she sort of serves as a counterpoint for Proteus. Do you want to kind of expand on that and sort of how you see her? Yeah, uh, and and I I will say... So just a, a couple things on this. One, you know, I think, um, you know, part of the reason we haven't talked about them as much is because the play, and we, we also haven't even really talked about Valentine as much. I think Proteus dominates our, our conversation because he's such a, it's such a strange, unexplainable, 
like bad character. But nonetheless, I do think, you know, in, in those scenes between Proteus and Sylvia, Sylvia is is a model of, I mean, not a model, but she she just sees right through him, right? She knows exactly what he's up to. She knows that he's a bad guy. She knows he's a bad friend. I, I mean, it, it honestly makes me feel better about Valentine's future that he's going to be with Sylvia, who is clearly a better judge of character than than the guy that she's with. Yeah, she might be the best person in the play, like in terms of, uh, you know, her sort of personal morality and not sort of succumbing to this guy who's... Yeah, and when she's she's allowed to be, you know, she's also, I think, allowed to be stronger than Julia, who is, a, you know, Julia is a, a wronged lover, and there's a lot with Julia about her, you know, about her sort of reaction to that and her being put upon. And, you know, I think Julia kind of, comes out looking not great only because she stays with this guy who's such a scumbag. And I, and I did I did wonder if there was an element of that that was the play trying to be about the heart wants what it wants. Um, but, you know, one of my... We, did, we, we don't need to talk about this because this is my question, but my big question reading the play was why the hell does Julia A, love Proteus, and B, forgive Proteus? And I wondered if it was just like a when you love someone, you love someone, and that's sort of what the play is trying to get at. Um, well, right. Sylvia, I, I felt like was was very much to the degree that we see her kind of the direct counterpoint of Proteus, you know, where Proteus is inconstant and changing and cruel. Sylvia is totally confident in her love of Valentine, follows him out of the city into the woods, is totally kind to Julia, who she believes at the time to be Proteus's servant, and is also excuse me, but both is kind to her in their direct interactions and also says very kind things about Julia, who she believes to be back in Verona, in terms of, you know, sort of really sympathizing with her about how Proteus has treated her. Um, so I, she, I think yeah. she doesn't, you know, it's she doesn't necessarily put a lot of action into the play, but I think she's definitely present as a moral center of the play. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. She even brings up Julia pretty, like, constantly to Proteus anytime he's trying to make moves on her to that point, which, you know, she confronts him about it. So in that sense, she's sort of a strong female character. So anyway, on that note, before we do our teaser for the next show, uh, what are you reading or watching, James, right now beyond our Shakespeare project? So, so I just finished reading Normal People by Sally Rooney. And then um, I am currently reading the Reflections on the Revolution in France, which I feel like you probably have read at some point. By Edmund Burke. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I've read segments yes. segments of it, but never the whole thing all the way through. Um, what about you? Uh, so I am in the final throes of finishing uh, Ron Chernow's Grant biography. Um, yeah, I've learned a lot. Uh, from it. You know, I consider myself pretty knowledgeable about the American Civil War, and I certainly know a fair amount about Grant as a military commander, but I didn't really know too much about his presidency. And so I'm actually, you know, you're fair, you come away fairly impressed with Grant from the book. You really do get a sense of Grant's military genius and also just fundamentally decent qualities that are sort mm-hmm. of you know, forgotten uh, in his advocacy for African-Americans and sort of the post-Civil War South, um, sort of efforts to to sort of be kind of farsighted about, 
you know, race relations and sort of the challenge of basically domestic terrorism. So there's a lot to admire there. But one thing that I took away from the, the war section, which really is great uh, and draws a lot on Grant's memoirs, which are also amazing, is how much better Grant is than Robert E. Lee in basically every single respect. I mean, Robert E. Lee comes I have to. I, I really agree with you. I, I, I read the book as well, and I was so impressed. Um, and I, I, had, I read the book after having, immediately after having read the personal memoirs. And I remember reading the sections about the Battle of Vicksburg and just feeling like this was something, A, that we never learned about in history class, but also how, just how dogged Grant was. He, you know, his sort of approach to generalship was, you know, well, this isn't working, so we're going to try this thing. And, well, that didn't work, so let's try this other thing. You know, he was just doggedly committed to finding something that worked. Um, Yes. There's something about his approach to strategy, which is more about being dogged and learning rather than getting everything right in one go. And... Yeah, you got to admire that. Like I, I, as I get older, I admire people that have perseverance and sort of grit rather than just virtuosity. Uh, and Grant yeah. certainly embodies those qualities. Yep, yeah, I'm with you. Next time we'll be talking about another so-called comedy with the maiming of the taming of the shrew. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us on Twitter at Bardflies. Or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>